Hello and welcome to the latest Stevenson Harwood Employment Law Podcast. My name is Kate Brearley. I'm one of the partners in our employment law group and I'm here today with my fellow partner, Kirsten Lucas. This podcast is the latest in our series of podcasts on employee competition, which we put together to tie in with the fourth edition of the book I co-author on post-termination restrictive covenants and confidential information, and to which Kirsten is a key contributor. Kirsten and I have worked together over many years on restrictive covenant cases, and between us have come across pretty much every issue that arises in this fast-moving area of the law. Today, we're going to talk about the important Supreme Court decision in Tillman versus Egan Zender, a case in which for the first time in nearly a century, our highest court considered the enforceability of post-termination restrictive covenants, and in particular, when a covenant might be saved by the application of the principle of severance, or what is often referred to as blue pencilling. Although quite why blue rather than red has always been a mystery to me, bearing in mind that conventionally from earliest experience of school days, it is red pens, or probably today red typeface, that is used to delete text or show negative comment, but I digress. In today's world where competition is fierce, restrictive covenants are vital tools in protecting a business. In some instances, they can be the difference between the survival and the collapse of a business. In others, they provide essential breathing space for the employer, giving time following the departure of a key employee or sometimes a team of employees for the business to reorganise, recruit or redeploy other employees and consolidate their relationships with clients and investors. As a starting point, it's worth just a quick reminder of the basic rules relating to the enforceability of post-termination restrictive covenants. As we outline both in the book and in our earlier podcast on drafting post-termination restrictive covenants, the key requirements for these types of the covenant to be enforceable are, firstly, they must protect a legitimate interest of the employer, and secondly, and this is the most important factor, go no further than reasonably necessary to do so. Generally speaking, overcoming the first hurdle of identifying the legitimate interest isn't a problem. The three most common categories of legitimate interest are well known and are as follows. Firstly, trade secrets and confidential information. Secondly, trade connections or goodwill, so for example clients, customers and suppliers. And thirdly, the stability of the workforce. In contrast, the second hurdle is the one at which covenants often fall. Generally, this happens in two ways. Firstly, because a covenant doesn't reflect the role of the employee at the time he leaves. Often this is because the role has changed over time and the employer has committed the fatal error of failing to update the covenant as the employee's role evolves. Kirsten, this is a problem we've come across many times. Indeed we have, and it is one of the simpler traps employers can avoid. All that's necessary is that each time an employee's role changes, and often that will be when an employee is promoted, the covenants are checked to make sure they remain fit for purpose. If they are not, then the covenant should be renegotiated with the employee. And, and this is another trap to avoid, specific consideration should be given for the new covenants. Consideration is a topic we consider in some detail in Chapter 13 of the book, but in broad terms, consideration is most commonly going to be a financial award or eligibility for a particular benefit. In each case, the award or benefit must be specifically attributable to the covenants, so not, for example, something the employee would become eligible for simply by the passage of time such as a cost-of-living pay rise. Alternatively, consideration could be the promotion itself, 
in which case it is very important to make it clear that the covenant is a precondition of the promotion. So that is the first trap for employers to avoid. The second most common way covenants fail on grounds of reasonableness is that, put simply, the employer is perceived by the court as being too greedy. For example, nervous at the damage a key employee could cause to the business were he to leave, the employer includes a covenant which goes far beyond what is reasonably necessary, taking into account the seniority and role of the employee. Pausing there, it's vital to remember that courts assess reasonableness at the time the covenant is entered into. So, even if a covenant might look reasonable several years later, when the employee may have been promoted once or possibly even twice, that won't generally be enough to save the covenant if it was too wide when the employee was junior and less experienced. I say generally because there is one exception, and one which Kirsten and I have tussled with in advising on specific cases over the years. That certainly has been another subject of our often late-night debates, Kate, and it's a point which arose in the Tillman case. The exception Kate refers to is that in assessing reasonableness, the courts can take into account what was in the reasonable contemplation of the parties regarding the employee's role at the time the contract was entered into. So, where it is anticipated that the employee's role would develop and they would be promoted, that can tip the balance in favour of the covenant being reasonable. In the Tillman case, whilst it didn't ultimately save the covenant, it was recognised that Ms Tillman was recruited with the expectation that she would be promoted and, as the judge at first instance put it, she was regarded as a bit special, so that could be taken into account by the court. Turning next to the specifics of today's talk, can we look first at the facts of the Tillman case? Egon Zender is a global executive search and recruitment group. Ms Tillman had previously been employed by JP Morgan as a European managing director and was recruited by Egon Zender in 2004, initially as a consultant, but as I have already said, with the expectation she would be promoted. She was duly promoted to partner in 2009, and by 2017 was both a partner and co-global head of financial services. Ms Tillman's contract, which remained unaltered throughout her employment, included a non-competition covenant, which provided that, for six months following the termination of her employment... She would not, without the prior consent of Egon Zender, and I quote, either alone or jointly, with or on behalf of any third party, and whether as principal, manager, employee, contractor, consultant, agent, or otherwise howsoever, directly or indirectly, engage or be concerned or interested in any business carried on in competition with any of the businesses of the company or any group company carried on at the date her employment ended or during the last 12 months of her employment and with which she was materially concerned during that 12-month period. The contract included a provision prohibiting Ms Tillman holding shares in a competing business whilst she was still employed by Egon Zender subject to a fairly standard exception permitting up to a 5% shareholding in a publicly quoted company. There was, however, no corresponding exception in the non-competition covenant itself. Ms Tillman resigned to join a competitor, her employment terminated on 30th January 2017, and shortly after, she informed Egon Zender of her intention to start her new employment on 1st May 2017, i.e. within the period of the non-competition covenant. Ms Tillman told Egon Zender that she would abide fully by all the other restrictive covenants in her contract. She also conceded that starting with her new employer within the six-month period was prevented by the non-competition covenant, but 
And here comes the rub for Egon Zender. The non-competition covenant was an unreasonable restraint of trade and therefore void. In other words, Ms Tillman's position was that the non-competition covenant was toothless. So, we have a non-competition covenant with the standard wording that has been used over many years, i.e. engage or be concerned or interested, being challenged as unenforceable. What one might ask was the basis of the challenge. The argument was simplicity itself. Miss Tillman argued that on its proper construction, the covenant prohibited her owning even a single share in a competing business. That went beyond the bounds of what was reasonable, being unnecessary to protect Egan Zender's legitimate interest. Let's look briefly at how that argument fared in the lower courts when Egan Zender sought an injunction to enforce the non-competition covenant. Well, that's an interesting story, and one which, at times, caused more than a mild measure of concern amongst covenant draftsmen, who are, of course, well used to the tried-and-tested formula of engaged, concerned or interested. At first instance, the point was neatly sidestepped by the judge, who, whilst accepting that the words interested in were capable of prohibiting the ownership of shares, taken into account other contrary indicia in the contract, that was not their meaning in this case. The injunction was granted, so round one went to Egon's ender, albeit the Covenant's draftsman felt that the interpretation was a little surprising. Ms Tillman then appealed. Before the Court of Appeal, Egon's ender were not so lucky, and so round two went in favour of Ms Tillman. First, the Court of Appeal roundly rejected the idea that the words interested in did not cover a shareholding, which they felt could also be covered by the words concerned in. Secondly, the Court rejected an argument that the wording of the covenant was ambiguous and therefore capable of being saved by the Court adopting an interpretation which resulted in the covenant being enforceable. Thirdly, and this is the most important point, the Court rejected Egon Zender's argument that the covenant could be saved by cutting out or severing words to remove the prohibition on the holding of shares. The Court of Appeal took a restrictive approach to severance, ruling that as the words which prohibited a shareholding were part of a single and larger non-competition covenant, rather than a separate and distinct covenant, they could not be excised. It's no understatement to say that the Court of Appeal's decision caused some considerable consternation amongst both employers and government draftsmen. So to whom did round three go? On the question of whether the words interested in covered a shareholding, unsurprisingly, the Supreme Court ruled that they did. Also, thankfully and correctly in our view, the Supreme Court reverted to a more conventional and modern approach to severance. For the future, the Supreme Court has confirmed that the words in a contract can be severed where three conditions are satisfied. Firstly, the unenforceable provision is capable of being removed without the necessity of adding to or modifying the wording of what remains. Secondly, the remaining terms continue to be supported by adequate consideration. Now, that's not usually an issue in employment cases, although do remember the point Kirsten mentioned earlier in the context of varying covenants during employment. The same consideration point applies where covenants are also introduced during employment. The third condition is that the removal of the unenforceable provision would not generate any major change in the overall effect of all the post-employment restraints, a point which it is for the employer to demonstrate. So, order restored and a collective sigh of relief from employers and draftsmen alike, but neither should rest on their laurels. As always, there are practical takeaways from the case for employers. There are indeed, Kate. And starting with the basics... Firstly, the judgment is not a green light to draft wide-ranging covenants. 
severance should be an argument of last resort. It's easy to draft in a way that ticks the box for the first condition, that the words are, in effect, self-standing. However, the battleground for the future will be whether the deletion generates a major change in the overall effect of the covenants. Remember, as Kate said, it will be for the employer to demonstrate that. Secondly, when drafting, think bespoke. Covenants should always be carefully tailored to the role and the seniority of the particular employee. A one-size-fits-all approach is simply not appropriate for restrictive covenants. And thirdly, review covenants regularly and always on a promotion. In this case, Egon Zender got away with their failure to do so because of the mutual expectation that Ms Tillman would be promoted. But that expectation won't apply in the vast majority of cases and results in many covenants failing. Just adding to that another couple of points for the future. First of all, because on the facts of Tillman it was unnecessary to do so, the case gives little assistance as to what level of financial interest in a competitor the courts would regard as reasonable. Instead, the Supreme Court alluded only to examples of a controlling shareholding or a minority stake of 25% of a company started with three others, so where in effect with in combination the employee could have a real influence in the business. The challenge for the draftsman will be to frame a prohibition in such a way as to fall the right side of the line of reasonableness. Secondly, the Supreme Court followed the trend of taking a literal approach to construction, holding the parties to the words used. The court rejected an argument that the words used were ambiguous, although interestingly, as Kirsten has mentioned, interpreted the word concerned differently from the Court of Appeal, regarding it as likely to mean working for or having some other active involvement in the business. Last but not least, whilst the more commercial approach to severance taken by the Supreme Court is positive for draftsmen and employers, it is not all good news. There is a clear indication that where employers have to resort to the courts to untangle badly drafted covenants, there will be adverse cost consequences. To quote the final sentence of the Supreme Court's judgment, In my view, the company should win, but there may be a sting in the tail. Thank you for listening. As always, Kirsten and myself and the members of our employment team are always available to answer your queries and assist in this tricky area. Please also remember that you can subscribe to the whole series of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com.